We started a series in 1 Corinthians last week and uh, the working title of Redefining Radical. Now, there is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus called believers to a radical way of life. It was completely different from the inside out, from the roots up. Complete change, something completely different was inaugurated when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a pretty massive thing. Now, we talk about radical today. Radical is simply that. It pertains to the roots. From the deepest part of who we are, huge changes take place. We have used the word negatively a lot lately. And we talk about radicalization. We talk about things like that. That ignores the roots. And instead concerns itself with extremes, with its extremities. If you think of a body, it thinks about the extremes of something, not the roots. Whereas the radical kingdom starts with the roots. It starts with where we're at. It starts with basics. When we, like some of the Western church, ignore the roots and we only do our extremes, it's amazing how little substance we really have when we do that. It appears Corinth, to me, has kind of gone to its extremes but has ignored its roots. And, uh, and I, I believe that, that Paul is correcting some of those things. Last week we had some history. We had some reminders of what the church in this message should be. And we had an early call to be radical by being Christ-centred and unified under him. In an individualistic society, in a church like Corinth where everyone was trying to be an individual and be good at it, Paul is going, hang on, get all the personalities out of the way and let this, let's make this thing about Jesus and get everybody on the same page. A church on the same page is a radical expression for a city around us. And I believe there's something really to be done there. So we're going to build further today and we're going to read a bit more Bible and look at a few thoughts verse by verse as we look at this. So uh, I'm going to start, we're going to start 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We covered the first 17 verses last week. Today we start at verse 18. So let's look at the first couple of verses just to get the ball rolling. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to, those, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. I'm going to leave it right there for one moment. These verses indicate, in very simple terms, that there's actually two types of people in the world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And this is determined by the way one responds to the gospel. The gospel by no means calls us to leave our brain at the door. It is entirely possible to have a measured, intelligent conversation about the claims of Christ. 
Many believers in the first few centuries took that time to have those conversations. Today we call it apologetics. Luke and his work was a pivotal work of apologetic for a, a Roman official to understand Christianity. The work of Justin Martyr and other people in the first couple of centuries there, these were important uh, contributions to the expression of Christianity in the world. The movie that's going to come out shortly, you know, the, that's actually going to be screened at, you know, as a fundraiser next Sunday afternoon. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the, which one is it? The, the Case for Christ. That is a good you know, way to look at that. Someone's already seen that on Facebook and thought it was a pretty good movie. But ultimately, the gospel calls us to reject worldly, unredeemed wisdom in favour of God's way of seeing and doing things. This applies to both pagan thought as well as those who were considering themselves religiously God's people. Isaiah 29. These people come near to me with their mouth, the Lord says, and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. This verse is important at this time because that's what Paul is quoting in verse 19. God and his salvation will not be found through human wisdom. And to cling to that part of us and to trust all that stuff will actually lead us to perishing. But instead, those who embrace the cross, despite how foolish it sounds, prepare to be astounded. There's actually a worship song. I think Planet Shakers does. It calls, Leave Me Astounded, Leave Me Amazed. Great song. Those that are being saved will be the ones who will choose God's apparent foolish way rather than the seemingly secure wisdom of human thought. That's the challenge we see in the first couple of verses. We're now going to flesh this out. Paul is going to flesh this out a little bit further here. Goes on. Let's read on. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let's take a moment to consider what Paul actually achieved in 51 AD. The time he set foot on the streets of ancient Corinth. He's a Jewish man who comes to town and pretty much sets himself up working the tools through the week and then looking for opportunities in his spare time to be able to, uh, to get inroads into his community. We know he arrives at least a little bit Intimidated, he's a little bit beat up, still nursing injuries from previous missional efforts. 
coming in intimidated with fear and trembling. He's normally in a team, but in this case, he's flying solo, and that daunts him a bit. There's a heap of crazy things going on in the city of Corinth. It is a cauldron of craziness. And there's not a church steeple anywhere. All right, the Google search for uh, Christian fellowship comes up empty. But there's a synagogue, and he's a Jew by birth and heritage, so he hopes he'll find a friend or two there. And to his delight, he's welcomed and even given the floor to speak in, in those gatherings. They're probably grateful to have an educated Jew come in their midst and actually come and be a bit of a, uh, a, contri- a new contribution to the, the way they thought about serving God. And in relatively subdued tones, educated, clear, but not all that riveting, he speaks in that gathering about one of their own countrymen. Now think about Paul preaching to Jews. All right, and their long history of knowing God. In 51 AD, we talk about the gospel like 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. 24 years ago, one of your own countrymen came who made a difference to my life completely. Back in the homeland, 24 years ago, a man captivated everyone he came into contact with. And there was a good reason for that because you Jews who have been looking for this forever, this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've all been looking for. 24 years ago, he came. Now, we know that he had repeated shots at speaking in the synagogue. This would have had to have been debated and discussed over a fair bit of time. Eventually, whether it was week one or otherwise, he would have been asked where this Messiah was now. What actually became of the Messiah? And then Paul would have replied a bit like this. Well, he wielded great influence for about three years. And at the ripe old age of somewhere between 33 and 36, he was rejected by the Jews and crucified. But don't worry, he rose again. We can all believe in him now. We can get in on this kingdom agenda that he inaugurated. Where is he now? He's ascended to heaven, so he's not on the earth running the place. No, but we have a kingdom to live out anyway. We read in Acts that Paul was eventually rejected from that setting. And we know in Acts that Luke puts it that Paul went next door to ministers of the Greeks. It's a sweeping term to speak of the rest of society. And in that same non-eloquent tone, he goes and explains the same thing, just slightly different. Telling the Greeks, who held a very high view of themselves, that a man from an unsophisticated part of the world came to inaugurate a kingdom, but he died as a young man. However, he did an unprecedented thing, something that no pagan religion anticipated. 
He physically rose from the dead as a first fruit, as a down payment of what is to come for all of us who will believe. He ascended to heaven and now offers the Spirit to anyone who will throw off everything you've ever known and put your complete faith in Him. You ever had a conversation with someone and gone, gee, that went better in my head than what it did when we actually spoke it out? You ever done that with a gospel presentation? That makes sense in my head. Why doesn't it come out right? Everything about Paul's gospel presentation was wrong to the carnal Corinthian ear. Jews with thousands of years of history, history of knowing God, the creator of the world, being told to put their faith in a guy that only some recognise as the Messiah, who suffered, that was outside the plan, who for all intents and purposes, according to Deuteronomy, was cursed. Cursed as he hangs on a tree. This was not at all a fitting way for a Messiah to behave or for his demise to have come. You had Greeks with centuries of education, intellectualism, philosophy, culture, every religion under the sun in front of their eyes. Everything just at the click of a button away. People who could be swept up, whipped into a frenzy by the emotive work of rhetoric. People accustomed to being wowed by people eloquently teaching the wisdom of the world. It was a people who divorced the physical body from anything eternal. And people who looked to an afterlife that was in some cases quite ambiguous, but mainly based on self-reliant things they did to set that up. Doing mission in Corinth involved engaging with Jews and Greeks who had been taught to think a certain way. Paul is coming in completely cold, There is no previous church history. There's no other backgrounds. There's no other expression of God around the place. There's nothing. And he's coming in presenting a foreign concept to both parties. There was stuff that the Jews couldn't get past as they thought all this through. And so the gospel became a stumbling block. Stumbling block, in other words, it was a cause of offence. The gospel was offensive to them. There was stuff the Greeks thought to be too simplistic in some ways and too out there to get their educated, rational minds around. So they just looked at Paul like he was a fool. They looked at subsequent followers as fools. Here's a newsflash. Corinth is not the only context to view Christianity that way. Last year during our series in Acts, I made the point that the missional conversations going on in Corinth were not too dissimilar to the ones we are having in the Mount. 
And the stumbling blocks and the perceived foolishness that Paul encountered in Corinth are things that we're going to come across too. Just think of the media's handling of, of Margaret Court's statement to Qantas just in the week to go, gone by. Okay, let's cut aside from the fact that some people think she's being persecuted. That's not persecution. All right, I'm sorry, it's not. All right, she's, she's actually not being slammed down. She's not being silenced. She's not being imprisoned. She's just stated an opinion that has been a stumbling block to some and an offence to some and foolishness to others. In my personal interactions, I've engaged with people who grew up religiously but don't know Jesus now. And when presented with the idea of Jesus dying for them, these people have reflected back to me that they've had difficulty trying to work out how that applies to them. I've been a good person all my life. How does Jesus dying on a cross apply to me? And it becomes a stumbling block. People get offended because they've gotten self-righteous and lost sight of their need for the sacrificial work of Jesus. I've engaged with non-religious people people with worldly outlooks and in some cases even clearly pagan ones. These people are polite, they're admiring of my Christian faith but are not convinced it's for them for a number of reasons. Some of that, it reflects a desire to hold too tightly to the things of the world. They'd rather hold on to the things of this world rather than anticipate the next. But there's other things there as well that to talk about Jesus when they don't want to listen to the Spirit in that, I can only hear the foolishness. But Paul tells Corinth and us here to hold firm and be faithful to the message of the cross, knowing what it is, but embracing it anyway. Jesus does not complement the philosophy of the world. He completely surpasses it. You don't find God through the wisdom of the world because the gospel bypasses it all. In fact, Paul goes to say that God on his worst day leaves for dead the wisest human on their best. Why is this? Well, simply put, among those considered the best minds in the world, Paul mentions the philosophers the wise people, the teachers of the law, the Jewish scribes, the most prominent voices of their generation. Paul is saying here that the best wisdom of their generation, the best wisdom the world can provide, was not leading anyone to the right conclusion. If all that stuff was so great, why wasn't there someone already following Christ already? No one had found Christ through the wisdom of the world. If after all these centuries of seeking, none of these things found the one true God and instead promoted ways that suited unhealthy human needs and desires, what value did it really have? Paul's short answer is none. But again, the church is being reminded that the gospel, as foolish as it is, as it is in a world like that, is where it's at. 
the message of Christ crucified will show the world the power and the wisdom of God in a way that no other way of thinking can. For in this simple and foolish message, there is the only power available to save the perishing soul. It might not sound like what these wise people sounded like, but you would find true wisdom if you chose the way of the cross. And that is what has taken place as the church begins to form in Corinth. We'll see this as we read further. Let's read on to verse 26 here. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That is what God's wisdom brings, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When we read of the early divisive stuff going on in the first 17 verses, and it will come out again soon, we realise that the trouble in that regard is actually an influential minority group. This leads many to believe that it's the Corinthian practice of patronage creating a problem in the church. Most church divisions occur because of a vocal minority group that then goes looking for alliances. And Corinth was definitely doing that. The vast majority of the Corinthian congregation is in fact the working middle to lower class of society. These house churches are not the place to go for your latest philosophical debate or rhetorical display. But Paul is stating here that they are in fact the place where true wisdom and power will be found by a seeking Corinthian. The simple church here is being told that they will be the ones that God uses to bring true wisdom to the world, where worldly wisdom is confounded and exposed to be the folly that it really is. Because as the cross is preached and seekers believe, they'll find the thing that has evaded the wisest human minds. They'll find the all-powerful God that they've only seen imitated or substituted all this time. And in that alone, would there be any reason to boast? The world was boastful. Corinth held their heads up high, thinking how educated and how elevated they were. How much of a higher plane they were. And Paul's going, nah, there is nothing to boast in any of that. There's nothing to boast about in the wisdom of the world outside our doors. And instead... Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. In fact, he's echoing Jeremiah 9. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. Not just that you know him randomly, but you know what he stands for. 
You know what He actually brings. You know what difference it is that He makes. We are who we are. I am who I am. Only because of who Jesus is and what he does. I don't stand before you here today considering myself an effective minister because I'm smart. It's actually quite the opposite. Anything that gets done from these hands or comes out of this head only comes about by the power of God. Anything of true value that I say only comes from God. And that is the case for every single one of us as ministers of the gospel together. We are who we are because of what God is doing in us. If you're anything like me, you are part of the many in this passage. Not the not many. And that's perfectly fine in God's way of doing things. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you. I am part of the many, the opposite. And Paul, as we read on our last five verses, places himself in that same category. He comes from that position as he does ministry in the city. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I've actually experienced that firsthand. When being interviewed for a church in Central Australia many years ago, and I'm walking around that city going, man, this, can, this harvest field, I could do this in my sleep, God. Never say that. I'm like, I'm walking around proud as punch going, I could be the next Billy Graham in this little city. I, I got puffed up and I'm going, man, this is... So, why isn't anyone else doing this? And God, in his gentle slap around the head way, goes, that's very much the reason why you're not coming here, Ken. You are not coming here. Get ready for that right now. Go home, tell Jenny, you're not coming. The following week, I'm in Sydney and everything about the place, everything about the city, everything about the context of ministry scared the daylights out of me and God said, see the difference? This is where I'm sending you, mate. <laughs> there can be no doubt that Paul had a brilliant mind. But as he walked into Corinth in an, into a new mission field, walking in cold... He knew that all his education could actually get in the way of a good gospel presentation. 
he also came across as a bit lacking as a communicator. He writes awesomely. But he had a reputation, at least to some of the Corinthians, and you read this in 2 Corinthians, he had a reputation as being a bit of a lacking speaker. And given that he actually did a really nice polished speech in Athens, given that he was actually quite effective everywhere else he went by actually being able to speak to crowds, I wonder if he did this by design. Perhaps he knew that he couldn't compete in human terms with the allure of the Corinthian world. He knew he couldn't fill an auditorium and light it up with the best PA smoke and lighting rigs and then wow the audience with an accurate presentation of the gospel message as the first century church understood it. Putting all that smoke and mirrors in place and then wowing that audience into essentially high trees and calling Jesus Lord instead of Caesar. Casting off all other agendas, getting rid of every other religious ideal you've ever had. Casting all that aside and repenting, shifting all agendas and coming under Christ alone and living under His kingdom and rule and being part of His kingdom initiative and, 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 and expressing and demonstrating and announcing His kingdom. It was a foolish message. Could he have done all this and then delivered that? Imagine the, I'm going to tell you the most foolish and the most offensive thing you've ever heard. And I'm going to challenge you to believe this and nothing else. Are you ready? Techno music in the background. (laughs) Perhaps doing it the Corinthian way would actually only be just another show that would lead to a week of debate over coffee and wine around the city. Then everyone would move on to the next guy who spoke, who walked into that auditorium and spoke again. Could this be why a prominent church leader a few years ago could announce that a thousand people came to faith in one year but in the same sentence lamented that the congregation saw no growth in that time? Perhaps Paul knew what we should know today that capturing people with a gospel of sorts that only appeals to emotion is going to yield a rather shallow result. Perhaps it isn't the best speeches that change the word world. Perhaps it isn't the lights and the smoke and the rhetoric and the coffee and the secular familiarities of modern church that will yield the real results. Perhaps it doesn't take a superstar preacher to see the kingdom truly be announced. Perhaps 
perhaps it will be the church that embraces what we truly are that makes the greatest difference in a city. And the radical way, perhaps, is not being like the world, but being and embracing the fact that we are different to it. Understanding that our message will become across as foolish at times. Understanding that we may be offensive. Now, we're not going out of our way to offend. All right? Now, if you want to take these right-wing Christian expressions and go, on, oh, yeah, you're going to hell, let's all make, go out of our way to tell you that. That's not the offense we're talking about here. We are talking about the fact that some will find this a stumbling block. It will be hard for some people to get over. Not because our, we are offensive, but because it is something that they've struggled to get over. It's their response to it, not our way of delivering it. We do believe in a gospel that will be a stumbling block to some. We actually need to be okay with this. We can dress it up any way we like, but at the end of the day, the message is still the cross. That's going to be a little bit unpalatable at times. This does not excuse us from learning and growing as disciples. In fact, Paul calls that in a few verses' time. Calls the church to do that. This does not give us permission to throw away any development of our personal theology and actually grow in that so that we can get a bit of clarity in how we deliver that. It doesn't stop us from getting better at communicating what we know. It's not a call to throw away all the methods of communication that the world around us works with every other day. Keep your social media, keep your microphones, keep your your loudspeaker system, keep the the ways we do to keep a crowd engaged, keep a PowerPoint up, do those things. But because God chooses the lowly of the world, the the lesser things, to confound the wise, it doesn't require us to wait until we're the best at it either. The gospel that you know now, even if it's in its infancy, even if you've only known it a week, The gospel that you know now has power to transform. And all you've got to do is keep it on topic. Christ crucified. A gospel with no cross at all is no gospel at all. But what little you do know has power to change. So let's not wait till we're the most eloquent people. Let's get on with the job of telling what we know. Let's understand that sometimes people aren't going to like that. But let's be at peace with that and be faithful anyway. Let's not try to filter it through the wisdom of the world, trying to make it more edgy so they get it. Let's actually understand what it is. And boldly proclaim that cross to the to the world around us. I'm going to leave it there, and we're going to flesh this out much more in weeks to come. We're still in chapter one, just going into chapter two now, so we're still in the introduction stages. But I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to worship God one last time.
as I consider the set list, I believe we have some very Christ-centred songs to finish out the, the, the morning. And again, that is good. It's not about me, me, me. It's Christ is enough. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. We're embracing the folly right there. (laughs) It might be foolish to some, but this is our gospel. Christ is enough. I wonder if you'd be willing to embrace that afresh today. You know what, if you're feeling intimidated because, oh gee, I'm not getting my message across sweetly enough or it's not as... Just be faithful with what you know and continue to grow, continue to know more in Christ. But be faithful with what you have in your hand now and let Jesus' wisdom come out in that. And, uh, and let's just get on with the job of continually preaching Jesus. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ soon to be returning. Let's be faithful with the message of the cross and let's continue to worship him. Christ is enough.